Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist and will provide inspiration tips from top professionals in the field. And today, we're in the middle of Writers of the Future week where we've got um, one of our most beloved contest judges, Robert J. Sawyer. And for those of you who don't know, Dr. Robert J. Sawyer is called the Dean of Canadian Science Fiction by the Ottawa Citizen. He's won all three of the science fiction field's top honors for Best Novel of the Year, the Hugo, the Nebula, and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award, as well as, is it still 11 Canadian science fiction and sci-fi auroras? I think it's more, but I've lost count, actually. But yes, the top Canadian science fiction prize, the Aurora Award. That's awesome. Welcome, Robert. John, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much. So um, it's been a while since I've had you on this podcast. I think you were on it once before Mm -hmm. um, when we were at the get-go of of this podcast. And back then, it was still a a neophyte podcast with a couple hundred listens per episode. And now we're between one and one and a half million listens per episode. So I'm anxious for a lot of people to, uh, to meet you if they don't know you or to find more out about you if they do know you. Terrific. I'm glad to be here. Great. So um, I guess the, the first thing is, for you as a writer, was this something when, when you came out of the womb, you asked the nurse for a pen and paper? <laughs> or how did this You know, that's you? interesting because I was writing stories actually in pencil on paper when I was a little kid. Uh, I've been very fortunate. You mentioned that the Ottawa Citizen called me the Dean of Canadian Science Fiction. Canada's taken me very seriously uh, as an artist, which doesn't always happen for science fiction writers. And uh, McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, actually, Uh, asked for my archives. So I had to go back and find all this stuff. And I did find my very first science fiction story that was written when I was eight years old. Wow. In pencil. uh, And it was, in fact, uh, Lost in Space fan fiction. The TV series Lost in Space was still on TV in first run at that time, 1967, 68. It was in its final season. And I'd written a little story about, you know, Lost in Space. And we recovered that manuscript somewhere. My mother had kept it. And when we were cleaning up the house. Moms are good for that. Moms are good for that. So going right back, absolutely. It was something I always really enjoyed doing was putting pencil and then pen and then finally word process, typewriter and then word processor to paper. That's awesome. And when did you first start taking it serious enough to start submitting to magazines or publications? I started submitting when I was 17, so a high school student. And the thing I loved about this field, and I still love about it, and one of the things I love about Writers of the Future, the contest, is it's a meritocracy. Nobody knew anything about me when I was, they didn't know I was a 17-year-old. This was way before the internet was widespread. You know, there's that famous meme on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog, right? And there's a dog sitting there typing. On, in, in publishing, nobody knows that you're a Canadian, as I am, a 17-year-old kid, your, your gender, your gender orientation, your, your religious affiliation or lack thereof, none of that. They just know the words on the page. It really and truly is a meritocracy. Now, at 17, I wasn't good enough yet, but I was trying, and I must say- so You were this, submitting to writers if you submitted at that point. Uh, yes. Not at 17, not at okay. 17. I, that was a little early um, for me. For That would have been 19. Uh, 77. What was the first year of Artists in the Future? That was, uh, 
It was announced in 83. Right. And the first book was So I was trying even before, but I was a teenager writing, you know, with with no real uh, skill yet. Um, I didn't make make a sale until I was um, 20. My first sale was when I was 20, uh, which would have been 1980. Uh, Actually, I was 19. I hadn't had my birthday yet that year. And um, uh, I didn't uh, really start making professional sales until seven or eight years later. But in that interim, between my very first sale uh, and uh, when I start, sold my first novel, which was 1990. So in that, you know, those 80s, the Writers of the Future contest was important to me because, as I said about publishing in general, anybody could submit. And same thing, Writers of the Future we don't, you know, I'm a judge now. I see yeah. how the anonymity is protected of the entrance. We don't know even the name of the entrant, let alone where they're from. So we don't even have that clue, uh, you know, that Jock McGregor, who has all of his carries saying, oh, no, is from Scotland. We don't know that. We don't know anything except whether the writer has talent. And I love that about this field. And the beauty of it, Writers of the Future, Al Budris, who was the original coordinating judge, we all miss him, of course, he's passed right. away. Uh, but Al was the original coordinating judge, and he was kind enough to write some comments on the cover page of one of my stories, which was sent back to me. And I got, I think, three honorable mentions, which is, you know, below placing in the contest, but really meant a lot. First, very nice, very pretty certificate, something yeah. tangible to show to people who might have said, oh, you're never going to make it, Sawyer, you know, you, you have no chance. No, oh, look at this. Algis Budris, Writers of the Future, they think I've got uh, the beginning of a talent. And there is, and the magazines were like that too. You know, you would get maybe only a sentence back from Shauna McCarthy or Gardner Dozois who were editing Asimov's science fiction magazine at that time, or Stanley Schmidt might just say, try again. But he was encouraged, even that, just try again. One more time, take it, keep at it. And with the Writers of the Future contest, that's what, you know, we see this every year. We'll have a winner who will say, oh yeah, that's my 18th entry or my 24th time entering the contest. Or that I enter, we have, as I'm sure most listeners of the podcast know, we have four quarterly deadlines every 90 days. That's a rhythm to a lot of people's writing life is every three months, I got to have something for that contest. And, you know, eventually, if you keep at it, uh, you know, you develop your talent like anything, like a... A musician or an athlete, you have to practice. And that every 90 days producing something for writers of the future is great, great, great practice for a writer. Absolutely. So you entered multiple times and then uh, you proed out, obviously. That's right, yeah. Proed out our phrase for when you've sold enough material. I think it's three stories that you're not qualified to enter our contest anymore. And we're always sad to see somebody who has been a regular entrant disappear, but we're always happy when somebody graduates to the big time. Whether they graduate as a winner or they just graduate because they've learned their craft by entering mm-hmm. on the quarterly basis, routinely entering, uh, we're, we always feel that we've given them a leg up. Absolutely. Now, it was in the, it was Torcon 2, which was in... Torcon 3. Torcon 3 when we Where were? we met. Torcon 2 was in Toronto, but it was in 1973. Is that the one you wanted to refer to? No. Torcon 3 in Toronto in 2003. 2003. That's right. Because I remember uh, going there, and we actually, um, 
Which was the World Science Fiction Convention, we should say. Sorry, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, that was a, a convention, I guess it was from, original was in 1942? It was sometime in the 40s. That was Torcon yeah. 1. Yeah. And then 1973, when I was 13, and I couldn't afford the $25, you know, now yeah. it's uh, 200 or something to go to a Worldcon. But then I just, I couldn't afford it, and I didn't feel right uh, begging to my parents for it. And it's always one of my great regrets. That's the year... Isaac Asimov won the Hugo for the gods themselves, one of the great yeah. novels of the field. And it was uh, seven years later before I made it to my first Worldcon, 1980, I went to the Worldcon in Boston. Right. My first time at one. But it was in the, it was in the, the first one there, and the, I think it was 42. Um, Owen Hubbard was there as one of the uh, pros. Yes. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah. And there was a photo that we found with him and Campbell and... Half a dozen others. Right. And so we blew it up, and I went there, and I presented it at the opening ceremony. And the gentleman, I don't remember his name right now, he was the con chair in the 1942 convention. Oh, wow. Was there at this, yes. at this convention, and I presented it to him, this, this photo. Yes. Which was, a lot of people didn't know how active Owen Howard was in the community right. there back in the, in the 40s. And so when they saw that photo, it became quite the the buzz at that yes. at that time. It was yes. the opening, that was the, the biggest event. And there. you mentioned Campbell in the photo. Of course, that's John yeah. W. Campbell Jr., the great editor of Astounding Stories. Who, uh, um, Hubbard was one of his uh, mainstay authors. Asimov was a mainstay author. Robert Heinlein, a mm-hmm. mainstay author, author of that magazine. That was the pivotal magazine of the period. Uh, Astounding Stories, still published, but under a different title now, Analog Science right. Fiction, edited these days by Trevor Kashri. Well, there you go. But there were two gentlemen at that convention that I was there with someone else from uh, Author Services. We had an opportunity to meet two different people. Uh, one was George R. R. Martin. Yes. And the other one was Robert J. Sawyer. And so we went, let's go see this Robert J. Sawyer dude. Right. And so we actually invested our, we had a little yes. bit of time, so we went and met with you. And uh, I can't help but think that, that was absolutely just hands down, both hands down, feet and everything else, the best decision that we could have made. Well, thank you. I've been so proud to be associated with this contest. You know, prior, as I say, I never won. A couple of, uh, three honorable mentions. But I have friends who, whose careers were absolutely launched without question by this contest. One of my best friends is James Allen Gardner, who was one of your, I think it was your third grand prize winner, Mm -hmm. very early in the contest. And he still speaks, uh, you know, uh, with great fondness about the writer's workshop and learning from A.J. Budras and others. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm friends with Stephen Baxter, the British science fiction writer, and he was one of Dean Wesley Smith, of course, is an old friend. And he's here not just as a alumnus, as a winner, past winner, but he's one of our judges as well. There's so many people who uh, had... Uh, uh, very positive experiences with this contest over the years, whether they won or not. This is, I, I keep coming back to this. Yes, there's a $5,000 grand prize. Yes, there's this wonderful writer's workshop run by Tim Powers. And now this is uh, Jody uh, Lynn Nye is uh, running it with him. Um, 
And that, that's all of that is wonderful. But just the experience of having people take you seriously as you're trying to learn the craft and getting a nice little uh, encouraging note from the coordinating judge, whoever it happens to be at that time, or an honorable mention or whatever, we have done so much good mm -hmm. in this contest that uh, I'm just uh, delighted to be a judge for it. Yes, and it was it was great seeing you accept your uh, your Hugo Award. Yes, there and that was George R. R. Martin. You mentioned handed me that Hugo. He was the presenter, uh -huh. and I was the presentee of what he called the big one, the best novel Hugo Award that year. I was very, very obviously just that was uh, uh, you know an absolute professional highlight, winning the Hugo for best novel of the year for my novel Hominids, which I enjoyed all three. Hominids yeah. followed by two sequels, Humans, which actually had its debut that weekend. It was, the launch was the weekend of the world mm -hmm. on. And Hybrids, the final volume. I'm very proud of those books still. Even though damn, it's 20 years since uh, I wrote them now, time definitely flies. It does indeed. And then the I think the last book of yours that I read was the uh, Oppenheimer Experiment. The, Op the Oppenheimer Alternative. Alternative. Oppenheimer right, Alternative. and Oppenheimer being J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb. And it's a, an alternate history, hard science fiction novel about Oppenheimer and the other great uh, physicists who were involved in one way or another that project, Enrico Fermi and Hans Bethe, Edward Teller, Albert Einstein, Leo Zillard. These are, you know, just names to conjure with. And it was um, a piece of advice for writers in general. And um, I think it, it really behooves a writer to try something hard rather than something easy. You may fail, but an interesting failure is much more interesting a read for the reader than a uh, unambitious success. We've seen endless space operas or endless uh, urban fantasies that are utterly interchangeable with all the other space operas and urban fantasies. So I always like to set myself a challenge. And for that book, in particular, The Oppenheimer Alternative, which is, it, I've finished one book since, but it's not out yet. So that's my most recent published mm -hmm. book, The Oppenheimer Alternative. Every single character in the book is a real person who was also a famous person. So in other words, in all my previous fiction, I was the world's foremost expert on those characters. I had made them up out of whole cloth. Nobody knew them better than I did. And nobody could say to me, you know, I don't think Caitlin in, say, my novel, Wake, would have done that. And I said, oh, yes, she would have. And here's why. I know that character. But I can't do that with Robert Oppenheimer. I'm not the world's leading authority. I'm not the leading authority on Albert Einstein or Edward Teller. But I had to write them so that the leading authorities would say, by God, that Sawyer guy did his homework, got them right. And not only for the, the experts, biographers, but many of these people have still, they're all dead, but they have living family members. Robert Oppenheimer's son, Peter, is still very much alive. Uh, one of our judges here at Writers of the Future, Gregory Benford, he was Edward Teller's graduate student, right? Edward Teller, who went on to be the father of the much more powerful hydrogen bomb, a very controversial character in the history of physics, Edward Teller. But his, his was the thesis supervisor for, you know, Gregory Benford, a writer of the future judge. And Greg read my novel and manuscript and said, yeah, you got these guys right. And that meant the world to me. Which is amazing because what made that story so different and I can totally understand it's hard, is up to that point, 
they were characters in history. Yes. You know, they had their role in in the development of science. They were no personalities. They were names mm-hmm. with an association to an atomic bomb, to a hydrogen bomb, to, you know, um, special relativity. There was no personality to them. Right. And so to create these personas must have been absolutely you know, difficult. And here's beyond. another challenge, right? I'm writing geniuses. I'm a pretty bright guy, but I'm not a genius, right? Albert Einstein, when you're writing Albert Einstein as a character, that's it's almost hubris to say, I, I can capture what the thought process and what uh, the dialogue and what kind of jokes a guy like Einstein would make. Uh, it was a real um, stretch of my abilities to try to write people at that intellectual level and yet make what they were saying and thinking and feeling understandable to any general reader. And plausible. At the and plausible. Pl- yeah. yeah, this is it. I'm a science fiction writer, not a fantasy writer, although we accept both genres with equally open arms for writers of the future. But plausibility is absolutely crucial to the kind of science fiction I write. We call it hard science fiction, not to mean that it's difficult, but that the science is rigorous. When the science is true, if it's, you know, we're talking about how an atomic bomb works, it's, this is really how it works. Right. And if we're extrapolating forward, then it has to be plausible, believable, rational extrapolation, not just pulling stuff out of the air. Yeah. And so it was, so that was the main thing for me that just really just slapped me in the face these guys all had, I had no reason to assume that it wasn't that they were like right. that, you know, and right. it sort of fit because I know how when you get people who are not necessarily what you might call social personalities, yes, having to work with other people, and you've got um, egos huge egos, gigantic egos. egos. You know, I mean, these are, in most cases, these are people who were told from when they were little kids that they were geniuses, right? It wasn't like they were unrecognized. They were, you know, put ahead years at school and they were uh, absolutely the brightest in their classes. And that, uh, you know, when you have that, it's like the the parallel we're talking here in Hollywood, California, uh, child stars, Right when you become world famous and everybody tells you you're brilliant when you're five years old, that does a real number on you. Yeah, you know, it, it it changes you in a way that I think the rest of us who had you know more or less normal upbringings just have a really hard time understanding. But the ego just swells and swells and swells, and you know part of uh, Oppenheimer. Uh, you know, uh, I always think if Oppenheimer could have looked back and seen the titles of the books that would be written about him. Not my novel, The Oppenheimer Alternative, but the nonfiction books. There's one called, uh, in fact, the, the best biography is called American Prometheus, colon, subtitle, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. It's another great biography by Priscilla McMillan called The Ruin of J. Robert Oppenheimer. And uh, there are many more with uh, titles along these lines about his downfall. And his downfall was brought about by an enormous ego. He had, he was a very much a tragic Greek, you know, Greek tragedy where there's a fatal flaw, the hamartia, they call it in a Greek uh, tragedy. It was this enormous ego that he thought he was brighter than everybody else around him. And he probably was until 
he was put in charge of Los Alamos, the, the uh, effort to make the atomic bomb. And then everybody around him was equally bright. And some of them did not take very kindly to his egotism. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing that. Now, one thing I, I skipped in, in your development, so it's Dr. Robert J. Sawyer. I have two honorary doctorates, Laurentian University, which is in Northern Ontario, the largest bilingual university. We do French and English in Canada, uh, largest bilingual university in Ontario. Uh, and they gave me an honorary doctorate first, and then I got one from the University of Winnipeg. And the one from the University of Winnipeg, they both mean a great deal to me. So I'm doctor, doctor. I can give you the news because <laughs> I got two doctorates. But the University of Winnipeg, um, you know, it has to be an honorary doctorate is sponsored by people on the faculty. And it was at that time, the Dean of Science and the Emeritus, I mean, it sort of retired at that point, the Emeritus Dean of Religion at the University of Winnipeg, because in many of my novels, Calculating God most famously, but in many of my novels, there's a discussion of the interface between science and religion. And I tried to treat both areas, both uh, fields with great respect. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that, uh, you know, the Dean of Religion and the Dean of Science came together and said, this guy should be honored with an honorary doctorate and convinced the Senate of the University of Winnipeg uh, that I should be just meant the world to me. I just, uh, you know, absolutely fabulous. Yeah. Which is great. So then your college studies was it primarily science? It was not. We, you have a lovely audio mixing board in front of you. Yeah. I studied radio and television arts at Ryerson University in Toronto. I, wanted, I knew I wanted to be a writer. I thought that I wanted to be a television script writer. And that's what I specialized in. I learned about and wanted to do that. And it just so happened, life takes its turns. The year that I graduated with my bachelor's degree was 1982. And that was the first year in its history that the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, had ever had layoffs. We were in a recession in Canada. There were no jobs to be had for experienced people in broadcasting, let, let alone, alone newcomers. Yeah. So I thought, well, I still want to write. And I started writing more seriously prose fiction for print, for publication. One of my great friends is Tanya Huff, who will be here in Los Angeles uh, in uh, this fall, going to be guest of honor at LOSCON, the Los Angeles um, Science Fantasy Society's annual science fiction convention. We were classmates together with the same dream of writing for television. And ultimately, we both did because we both ended up having TV series made from our work. In my case, it was my novel Flash Forward became a series made here in Los Angeles by ABC Studios. Um, but we both sort of, eh, there's no jobs in TV. We're going to write novels. And that's how we made our career, writing novels. But yeah, my degree is in broadcasting. Wow. So let me just adjust your panel here a little bit. <laughs> let, me, let me ride your levels for you. Yes. <laughs> so now with You've got so much science in your books. Mm -hmm. That's what threw me on yes. that. Yes. You know? So uh, you're very insightful to, to note that because I look at it this way. And it's funny because some of my colleagues uh, who went through radio and television arts, they became sports journalists. They're not athletes themselves. Well, they may be, you know, may have a little bit of, but they're not, they're not athletes, but they can write about athletes. And I have some very good friends who are science journalists. 
they're not scientists themselves, but they understand all of that. And I think as a science fiction writer, it's very akin to being a sports journalist or a, or a science writer. You may not do that field professionally. And we have, amongst our judges, we have very few of the science fiction writers are actual scientists, Greg Benford being the great exception, who, of course, is now emeritus professor of physics at University of California, Irvine. But uh, most of them, including Larry Niven, who is, you know, to me, an idol, one of the great, great hard science fiction mm-hmm. writers, you know, uh, he's not a scientist, never practiced science in his life, but follows science, the way a sports buff might follow football or baseball or rugby or whatever their sport is. And I do the same thing. I read voraciously in popular science and also in the technical publications, the scientific journals and so forth, go to science conferences. And as you go on in life, you develop networking with people. And there are all sorts of scientists, paleontologists or quantum physicists or, or astronomers who will send me links and emails and the latest paper and say, you got to know about this guy. You have to talk to that guy. Stuff is happening. You should be aware of it. That keep me on the cutting edge. But I'm a guy with an arts degree who writes hard science fiction. You do. I mean, when I read your WWW yes. trilogy, it was like, it was fascinating. I'm like, wow, what type of an understanding you I had to understand dive to be able to get of of how uh, information, the whole concept of information science, of how the internet is structured, how human consciousness is structured in terms of in the mind, how vision works because the main character was starts off blind in the book, Uh, all of that, and to me, that's what I love. I I like to say I write my fiction to support my research habit. Nobody will pay me to just research things endlessly that happen Mm -hmm. to interest me. So at the end of the day, I have to produce something that's going to generate an income. My novels do that for me. But what I love about being a science fiction writer is there are very few jobs for a science generalist. Greg Benford is a particle physicist. He has a very narrow field of expertise. Of course, he knows a little bit about a lot of things. Everybody, every intellectually mm-hmm. aware person does. But his specialism, his specialty is very, very narrow, as it is for any scientist. I thought I wanted to be a paleontologist, for instance. Somebody studied dinosaurs. Um, was, and I was actually accepted to study paleontology at the University of Toronto and so forth. And... Uh, I could learn opera too. There's somebody singing opera in the background here. I don't know what's going on. I didn't want to hyper-specialize. I just, I love going one day I'm researching quantum physics. The next day I'm researching paleoanthropology. The day after that I'm researching uh, uh, some aspect of uh, experimental psychology. And then the next day I'm off doing cosmology. I love being able to follow my nose wherever it goes. And I think of science fiction writing as, uh, I sometimes call it the genre of intriguing juxtapositions because it's the place where disciplines that normally have nothing in common can come together and interact. So for instance, in my novel Hominids, it's as much about quantum physics as it is about paleoanthropology. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at, say, UC Irvine, where Greg Benford teaches, 
The guys who teach paleoanthropology there would never even have met, unless they happened to serve on some committee on faculty, never even would have met the quantum physicists and vice versa. But in the pages of science fiction, you can bring those two fields together. Absolutely. And you've done that so many different ways. That's why we, I hadn't realized that your degree was yeah, not yeah. science. Yeah. So you've done, done, you done did good on... Uh, well, thank you. Yes. Thank you. So now on, on um, things are changing rapidly in the world of publishing. Yes. And, you know, it's not like this is the way you do it is very much an anachronism now. Right. You know, so what's your perspective on moving forward? Do you still consider yourself strictly a traditional pub? Uh, so that's a very interesting question because the world has changed enormously. Right. And not necessarily in good ways for writers. Um, I certainly started out in the era of traditional publishing when that was really your only option. Mm -hmm. There was such a thing as self-publishing, but it had a pejorative name. It was called Vanity Press. You could pay any – anybody could go to a commercial print house and say, print my book, and they mm -hmm. would do it if you paid the money. And you would end up with – whatever number of copies of your book with no infrastructure by which to sell them. And, uh, you know, you would be uh, basically the, the phrase stuck with a basement full of books. Um, there was no such thing as uh, honorable self-publishing. There were also a whole bunch of traditional publishers back then where you could, you know, if uh, Warner didn't want you, then maybe Ace would want you. If Ace didn't want you, Del Rey or Bantam or Dodd, there were so many. And there were, you know, eight big traditional publishers and the mergers, seven, six, five, we're down to four now. And two of the remaining four are trying to pass hurdles with the Federal Trade Commission in, here in the United States to be allowed to merge so there will only be three major traditional publishers, which means that there's hardly any bidding Mm -hmm. Between them, it's hard to get your advance to go up. It used to be, you know, well, if they won't give me, I mean, I, I, I would switch back and forth. I was at Warner. I went to Ace for more money. I left Ace to go to Tor for more money. I left Tor to go back to Ace for more money. You know, you could, you could work your way up by zigzagging from publisher to publisher and increasing your advances. And uh, that's much harder these days. Uh, also, publishers, traditional print publishers, keep wanting more rights, control over more rights, um, without giving you a bigger advance for those rights. In other words, uh, you know, when you agree to have a book published, the publisher will say, okay, we'll publish your book, here's some money up front, um, and uh, at the beginning of your career, you have to write the whole book before they'll give you any money, because they don't know that you can finish a book. Who That's knows? Fair you know? enough. Yeah. As you go along, they know, okay, Sawyer's finished books several times. We can trust that if we give him some money up front to live on, mm -hmm. he'll he'll actually deliver. And indeed, that's the usual way of doing it. But it used to be you get, get an advance and they would like the right to publish the book in print and distribute it to traditional bookstores. That's fine. More than a decade ago, they started saying this ebook thing might be getting significant. We want those ebook rights too. Now, if you self-publish an ebook with Amazon or Kobo or Nook on the Barnes and Noble platform or Apple Books or Google Playbooks, you get whatever the customer pays, you get 70%, 70% of that. That compares to 
You're lucky to get 10% on a paperback from a traditional publisher. But even on ebooks, the publisher said, we want the ebook rights, and we'll give you 25% of that 70%, or 17.5% if you do the math of the 100%. So if you pay $5 for the book, there's $3.50 is 70% of that. And of that, they will give you 25% of that instead of the whole $3.50 for doing nothing more than pushing the upload button that I could have pushed just as easily myself. So for my most recent, uh, oh, and then in the last five years. But that's not all. But that's not all. <laughs> then audiobooks, which I must say uh, Galaxy Press has been right in the forefront of with these wonderful multi-voice productions of mm -hmm. all the tales from the golden age that, that Hubbard produced, uh, uh, you know, with um, just fabulous voice actors, uh, you know, and just, just wonderfully put together. Um, but you guys were on the cutting edge. Now everybody has realized that audiobooks are huge, right. absolutely huge. And so again, the print publishers say, okay, we'll have your print rights. We'll have your audio rights. We'll have your, uh, we'll have your ebook rights and your audiobook rights. And I, you know, I've been selling my audiobook rights quite lucratively to other to audiobooks, especially mm -hmm. publishers, either Audible or directly, or to recorded books or Blackstone, you know, these sure. names are the big com uh, companies in the industry. And I didn't want to give up those rights. And I finally said, with the Oppenheimer alternative, these publishers are doing less and less every year. They're expecting us writers to do all the promotion. They used to do promotion. They used to do some advertising. They used to send authors you know, not routinely, but often enough on book tour, they would do things to help sell books. And they've decided now that, no, the author has to do all of that and bear whatever expense there is for all of that. I thought, I'm just tired of this. So I was approached by a small press uh, for, my, for the Oppenheimer alternative, uh, a company now well-known to uh, uh, writers of the future, um, Arc Manor, Phoenix, uh, Pick, and their, their uh, high-end imprint, Kasich, edited by, published by Shahed Mahmood, who mm -hmm. was at your most recent Writers of the Future event, and uh, with Leslie Robin as managing editor. They also do Galaxy's Edge yeah, magazine, yeah. wonderful magazine, which has um, a Hugo finalist this year uh, from their, their roster of writers, which is terrific. Anyways, they approached me and said, we, we can't match the advances of the you're used to, but we're very flexible. Is there some way we could do a deal? And I said, yeah, you can have my print rights, but not my audio rights and not my ebook rights. I want to keep those. And um, Shahed thought about it and said, okay. So the book is available in bookstores everywhere because Shahed's distribution is through Ingram, the same people that distribute most books to the book trade. Mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, I am just thrilled with how it's worked out. I'm getting my full royalty on all the ebook copies. I retained all my translation rights, another thing traditional publishers keep grabbing but doing very little with. And I retained my audio rights. And then the world keeps changing. For my most recent novel, Audible came to me and said, we're you know, the, the world is changing. All the print publishers are grabbing all the audio rights. So we're not able to acquire audio rights to books directly from authors anymore, but we like working with authors. How would you like to write an original novel for us that we would have an exclusive window for? And I said, well, what have we got in mind? And they offered a very large amount of money 
for six-month exclusivity for my next novel. So it'll be an audiobook first, which is I've, I previously is awesome. had. It's awesome, isn't it? Yeah. I previously had audiobooks come out simultaneously with the print. You coordinate. You know, Recorded Books is doing the Oppenheimer Alternative. They coordinated so that their edition would come out the same date that the Oppenheimer Alternative. Everybody wants to be taking advantage of each other's you know, Publicity, marketing right. uh, visibility. But um, Audible said, well, we want this. We want it for six months, after which you can do whatever you want with it. You can print, you can do ebooks, you, anything you want, and you can ret- uh, uh, all the other rights. But give us a six-month window and write us something that will work well in audio. And I thought, well, that's, A, the money was great. B, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to do something that has nine first-person narrators, each of which will be done by a different actor or actress in the audio production. And it was quite an interesting challenge to do. I loved doing it in the end. It turned out to be great. It was also a market for a short novel, which there really isn't from the big publishers anymore. Uh, A typical novel these days, about 100,000 words, plus or minus. And in fantasy, it might be up to Mm 200,000 for an epic fantasy. And um, I was able to do a 50,000-word novel for them, which in the golden age was a very common length, 40, 50, 60,000 words. Many of the most famous novels that people think of as the cornerstone texts of our field were very short novels. And in fact, go right back to H.G. Wells and The Time Machine technically isn't even a novel. It's only 38,000 words. And the Hugos and the Nebulas are industry standard. We define a novel as 40,000 words. So it was a novella. We take works almost as long as the Time Machine in Writers of the Future contest. We take novella-length works. So um, to get a chance to write at what felt like a good natural length, because a lot of novels, you know, they might... They want the novel to be big and fat so they can charge $30 for the hardcover and $10 or mm-hmm. close to that for the paperback, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that's the natural length for the story. Lots of stories tell very nicely at novella length or yeah. short novel length. They bloat them because of... That's right, because of the market requires... a When it's a physical product, you think, well, I want my fiction by the pound the way I buy my chicken, right? Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> I'm not getting much for my pound, uh, many pounds for my dollars here on this book. Nobody cares about that in an audiobook if it's, right. you know, and it's still a, it's still a, you know, a, a six hour audiobook and it's a, it's a good reading experience. It'd be much cheaper than a full length novel. Um, but for Audible, cause you've got, I mean, I like that six to 10 hour yeah, window yeah. for myself cause I've got a subscription. So right. I use yeah, me too. a credit, you know, so yeah. a credit, so I can get a, you know, I don't like it when I'm getting a two-hour audiobook or yeah. three-hour book for credit, but right. six, to, six to ten hours is, is a good listen for me. Yes. I can enjoy it. But there's more. Because for these Audible originals, they're actually going to be in mine, amongst others that they're doing in this line, are going to be included free without using a credit, as long as you have an Audible account. Because they're trying to open up this space of original audio productions and make Audible... You know, uh, it's like net. It's very much like the history of Netflix. Remember how Netflix started out? It was a place where you would get sent a DVD in the mail, yeah. and all they did was distribute other people's content. And that's how Audible started out. Originally, they weren't producing anything. They would make a deal with Galaxy Press, or they'd make a deal with Recorded Books, or Blackstone, or somebody else. And they would simply be a distributor. Well, just as Netflix has grown to be one of the biggest movie and TV content creators in the world, Audible wants to be 
the biggest creator of original audible content. If you listen to it, they want to be not just the distributor of it, but as much as they can be also be the producer of it as well. And to get into that space, to carve it out and create, as Netflix has created, a whole new industry, they're giving away uh, what they consider, and I'm proud to be considered part of it, really high quality, highly uh, high production value, first rate author, original productions as their audible originals, they call them, and they're included with your subscription. Yeah, I mean, you only got one opportunity to make a good first impression. Absolutely, that's right. That's right. And it's that that marketplace has gotten so razor sharp. Yes. you know, just like the like what Mr. Everett said when he started the uh, Rise of Feature contest. You know, the competition is is very intense, and so right now with so many things that are grabbing and vying for the attention of the consumer. Yes. Uh, and there's so much stuff with with the games, with the audiobooks, with the books, with the TV, with movies. You've got to do something that can just that little bit more that's going to make a person, okay, let's check this out. And then, oh, this is that's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. But that said, uh, you know, uh, focus is a good thing for a writer. If you want to write print, write print. Don't write print hoping that it's going to get made into a movie. If you want to write movies, write movies. Don't, you know, and if you, if you want to write, you know, they are actually making Star Trek stuff right now. They're making Star Wars stuff right now. There's no reason to say if, if I want to write Star Trek that I should be writing a Star Trek novel. Pursue writing for the actual, what we call the canonical property, right? Star Trek and Star Wars and all the franchises are in vigorous current production. So, uh, you know, uh, this idea that if you're a novelist, you can't go and pitch to Hollywood. You know, the showrunner for the first season of Star Trek Picard was Michael Chabon, a very fine novelist, uh, you know, Hugo Award-winning novelist. And he had never had really screen credentials, but he said, I got a great idea. And they said, oh, all right, let's, let's hear it out. And ultimately became the showrunner of a, of a Star Trek series. Which is amazing. Yeah. Now, you spoke to the winners yesterday. I did, uh, in the workshop. Yes, and so you had a specific topic you wanted to be able to discuss. So I'd like to have you share that with the listeners here too, because I think it's really important that people yeah. have that. Uh, you know, there is a tendency, and we have a lot of judges here who are very prolific writers, and to say, write all the time, write everything you can, get that word count out as much as possible. And that is certainly a valid path. And there are people who have made millions of dollars doing that. I always tell people, take a breath. Write the stories that are important to you. Don't write as many stories as you can. Write the stories that only you can tell, that move you and will move somebody else when they read them, that bring your life experience to, yes, to a fantastic realm, if you're writing in science fiction or fantasy, but something that you've got to share with the world that's important. You know, um, Frank Herbert, Frank Herbert was a judge early mm -hmm, on. He was. Now he's passed away, of course, but he wrote Dune. He wrote a bunch of other things that nobody reads anymore. Nobody reads Hellstrom's Hive anymore. Nobody reads Under Pressure anymore. Nobody reads my favorite, The Whipping Star anymore, or The Dasati Experiment. He's remembered for his magnum opus, Dune. And that's perfectly fine. If you write even one brilliant work, 
in your life. That's perfectly fine. If you, with every work that you do, can say at the end of it, not, I did that one for the money, but I'm proud of that one. You can have a very fine career as well. Uh, We have judges who have written, uh, you know, um, novelizations of movies that they never even bothered to go see once the movie was finally in the theater. We have, uh, we had a a judge, Mike Resnick, who, uh, you know, had never seen an episode and never watched later Battlestar Galactica. And he wrote Battlestar Galactica novels for the money, but he's remembered for his works like Seven Views of Aldivai Gorge that won the Hugo. Um, And it actually, in the case of Bresnik, and he was a great mentor of mine, it took, I think, several decades into his career before he realized that the important work was what he was going to be remembered for and not the stuff that made a quick buck. So I'm a huge believer in writing your stories, establishing Mm -hmm. not somebody else's brand, not being the right-hand side of an ampersand on a byline, and not writing in some franchise, uh, you know, that uh, is owned by some big media conglomerate, but creating your own worlds, your own characters, and telling memorable, powerful, important stories. I firmly believe that that is every bit as valid a path for a writer as the write, uh, you know, a million words a year and so forth. As one of uh, my friends said at one point, you know, I understand writers who only write one book a year. What I don't understand is what they do with the other nine months. And my wife had the perfect comeback. She said, polish their awards. (laughs) So you can go down either one of those paths. Both of them can be quite successful. Right. And it would seem... Obviously, if you're if it's a difference between a vocation and an avocation, yes. you know if it's a vocation, you're also you know you've got a path that you've you've stayed true to your what That's you just right. said here. That's right, and it has turned out to be a lucrative yes. vocation for you. You know, so that's that is you know by naming it and wanting it and working it and making that happen, you've now got it right. because oh yeah, you've got novels that are just like. You know, they're superlative. Each one is a standalone story or trilogies. They're standalone trilogies. But I, yes. Yeah. But each one I'm proud of. There's not a book in my oeuvre, 25 novels I've written now. Uh, Oppenheimer Alternative is the 24th, and this one for uh, Audible uh, called The Downloaded is the 25th. I'm proud of every single one of them. You know, there's not uh, one where I said, I just did that for the money, or I, you know, I didn't really bring my A game to it. Um now, that's a career that's lasted. My first novel came out 32 years ago, so it's not even a novel a year, but it's, it's been a fine, lucrative career. I'm, you know, I do well financially, I'm happy, and I'm proud of the work that I did. Uh, and uh, you know, the era where people could make a living writing fiction, the heyday of that was Hubbard's era, right? Yeah. Um, Spider Robinson introduced the Hugo Awards uh, about a dozen years ago. He was the Toastmaster. And he said, welcome to the awards named in honor of a man who invented a per word pay rate we still use, right? Because Hugo Gernsback was paying pennies a word in 1926 when he founded Amazing Stories. And Hubbard was getting pennies a word in the 30s, the 40s, Asimov and Heinlein. Everybody was writing for those rates. Most science fiction still pays less than 10 cents a word. Yeah, I mean, pro race is eight cents. That's right, which is, you know, uh, compared to two cents in the 1940s, eight cents is nothing. 
right? Right. Two cents would buy your loaf of bread back then. Eight cents is, it's nothing. Buy a slice. So that's right. A slice. Stale bread. Of stale bread. So for most writers, that's true. Most writers, it's going to be an avocation, a hobby. If you're lucky, a, a nice little s- sideline. Um, and that's, that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Uh, what I always say to people at the beginning of their careers, if you want to be a writer, don't study creative writing at university. Because the only thing that prepares you for, actually, is teaching creative writing. It doesn't even prepare you very well for being a writer. Study anything else that will inform your writing. Study history, study politics, study anything that will, science, uh, something that'll give you a well of information to draw on, but also give you the potential at actually making a living, too, Mm -hmm. Uh, which a creative writing degree, literally the only job it qualifies you for is teaching creative writing. And even teaching at universities these days is a lousy living. It's almost all sessional instructors. Tenure, which used to be a fairly standard thing to get, is incredibly elusive at universities these days. So yeah, go into this field because you love writing. Don't go into this field because you think it's an easy way to make a living, because it isn't. Absolutely, absolutely. So for the aspiring uh, writer in this day and age, We've got 10 minutes left to go here on this, so we've got a few different things mm-hmm. I want to be able to sure. rapidly, rapid fire touch on. So just advice or tips for the aspiring writers. You've talked about the one thing like, you know, write memorable, but in terms of how to make that, so you've already overcome that hump. You're in there. Yeah. You're like, you can say, okay, I got my next novel, or you've got Audible approaching you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so what would be some advice you'd have? Because it's a different playing field now. You know, there is the whole thing with um, the self-publishing, the indie publishing, yes. as well as the traditional and the hybrids. You've got just some right. uh, Kickstarter now yes. is a major Yeah, well, but, and one of our judges, Brandon Sanderson, is, uh, you know, made... Outrageous. It was like $40 million. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, his Kickstarter, now he does have to write four novels or six novels, but still, he set the all-time record. If you call that the advance that he got, it's the largest advance in science fiction and fantasy publishing history, by far, by far yeah. the largest advance. Um, so here- Even Kevin's got a, a Kickstarter for his Dan Shambles next- That's right. Out, he's got, it's up to $50,000 right yeah, now. Yeah, 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 that's right. The Kickstarters is, which is, you know, crowdfunding, where you say, if- you pledge some money to me, and if enough people in aggregate do that the project is viable, then I will go ahead and write this project. So there's a term they use in um, business these days called disintermediation, which is taking out the middleman between the producer and the consumer. Disintermediation, uh, which is... uh, Uh, the most disruptive of technologies. When I self-publish, I'm saying there's me, the writer, and you, the reader. There's no publisher in between taking A, as a gatekeeper, keeping things out and saying, no, no, that one's, we don't want that one. And B, taking the lion's share of the money for, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, just uh, standing in between. So disintermediation is a very powerful uh, ability. And for an established writer like Brandon or established writer like Kevin, Uh, you can go to an audience and say, hey, I've got a great idea, and you know me. You know that I'm going to produce, so you can trust you're going to need a decent product. 
I'm not sure that crowdfunding is particularly viable for people who have never established an audience yet. And here is a thing that I have observed over the years. Most people don't get any appreciably better than their first publication. So if your first publication is self-published where there's no barrier to entry, you're probably, you convince yourself that you're a publication quality author at that point. If your first publication is a very tiny markup that has very little to choose from, you're probably not as good as you think you are, but you've told yourself, okay, I'm here, I'm arrived, I'm a professional, and you stop striving. It's not true for everybody, but you look at uh, so many classic authors and uh, when we talk about Isaac Asimov, we don't mention the works he did when he was 60 or 70 years old. We mention Foundation and the robot stories that he was writing when he was in his 20s. Arthur C. Clarke, as much as we all loved following his career to the end, uh, it's Childhood's End, a work he did as a very young man that stands out. This is true, Frank Herbert, uh, Dune, which came out in 65 and had been written even prior to that. Uh, we remember much more fondly than its sequels that he wrote or anything that came later. Um, but the bar was high for those guys to get in. Right now, you can just choose to be a published author and say, I'm going to put my thing up on Amazon. And don't do that. Strive to win our contest, Writers of the Future. Strive to crack Asimov's or Analog or FNSF or Lightspeed or Galaxy's Edge, a credible markup. Strive to sell a novel to a traditional publisher. Um, and you'll find out pretty quickly whether, whether you are as good as you think you are. And if you aren't as good as you think you are, then practice, practice, practice. The weird thing about writers is this. Unlike any other profession, we're the only art form that thinks the very first thing we do, somebody should pay us money for. No painter says, the first time I put brush to canvas, please hang it in a gallery. No musician says, the first time I do me, 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 that you should record it and release it, you know, as, a, uh, as, a, as an album, right? But every writer thinks, here's my first novel, here's my first story, here's my first poem. It's brilliant, publish it. It probably isn't. Learn your craft, practice, work hard. And when other people start telling you this is really good, that's when you probably are starting to get to be really good. And that's one of the great strengths of Writers of the Future is we give feedback. Mm -hmm. You know, we give feedback in terms of, and I, I don't know the, the grunt work, I have to say our coordinating judges do, uh, of sifting through the huge number of submissions and providing that pat on the back when it really will help encourage somebody to get to the next level. Absolutely. Thank you on that. Now, early on, you made a comment about an upcoming project. Yes. Yes. So I finished this first one for Audible and I had such a good time. I decided I wanted to, uh, uh, I've now outlined a second project for them and, um, um, I'm just about to submit the proposal to them. But the one that's coming up, the downloaded, I, I'll say a few words about that. This is this thing coming up for Audible because there's a lesson here, I think, for writers, which is, as I always say, all science fiction is about the year in which it was written, not the year in which it was set. It may appear to be set in the future, but the downloaded is about this year of 2022, where we are coming out of the pandemic. 
what happened during the pandemic is everybody went online. We, in essence, became uploaded consciousnesses. We didn't go to the office. Many people did not. They commuted from home. They did all of their interaction was by video conferencing. They were dealing with the version of a person, often with a fake background behind them, with the filter on that, you know, you can do on Skype and on Zoom where it says, touch up my appearance and the wrinkles and blemishes disappear. We were living in virtual reality in the most uh, real sense of it mm -hmm. that had ever existed. And now that the masks are coming off and the mandates are ending, we have to go back to dealing with physicality. And we've been changed by the experience of being distanced from people and living in our own little bubbles for two years now. So the downloaded is metaphorically about that. It's about where people really did upload into virtual reality for a period of years and never intended to come back down. And then a disaster occurs and they have to decant. They have to download back into the real world and realize what it means to be physically human again. And if you scratch the surface of our winners of this year's Writers of the Future, you'll find uh, no matter where the story was set, and we've had them set at, at poker tournaments, we've had them set in a school where a human with an alien symbiont shows up and all kinds of things, you realize they're really writing about the here and now. And science fiction has always been metaphoric with masks and disguises and getting at something that we're a little bit afraid of facing head on because we're all super sensitive about talking about politics or religion or sex or gender today. We're all hot button topics. Well, that's what science fiction is all about. But doing it with a little bit of a metaphor, a little bit of distancing so that people come in without their preconceptions and we can really have a communication about hot button stuff. So that's what I'm working on, the downloaded, the audio version exclusively from Audible, written by me, produced by Greg Sinclair, who was uh, formerly the uh, head of radio drama for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. We brought him aboard to produce this. Uh, we'll be out this fall from Audible and free to everybody who has an Audible account. That's amazing. So for someone to find you on, on planet Earth, yes. Where should they look? So my name is Robert J. Sawyer. I use that middle initial like Arthur C. Clarke and James T. Kirk, Robert A. Heinlein, Robert J. Sawyer. No punctuation, just Robert J. Sawyer run together on Twitter, on Facebook, and on Patreon. Uh, and uh, my website, I was... I, I thought this was going to be big, this web thing. So I was the first science fiction writer in, in the world to have a website. And I was able to get the very good address for that of sfwriter.com. Com. S is in science, F is in fiction, writer.com. And you'll find over a million words of material there, including tons and tons of advice for beginning writers. Robert J. Sawyer at sfwriter.com. That's great. Thank you so very much. And oh, we are pleasure. so happy that you are one of our judges who uh, is able to continue putting the future of science fiction and fantasy there. It is an honor and a privilege to be helping to shepherd the next generation. And it is also an obligation because people like Algis Budras and others helped me when I was starting out. And you have to pay it forward. Yeah. And like I said, when Elwin Hubbard created his contest in 1983, he put it there. Algis was just, he couldn't say enough good things about yeah. him having yeah. you know, known him. But it's um, something we're very, very proud of. And it just gets bigger and better. Absolutely. Great. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Writers of the Future podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeart, and Spotify. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network, where you can find these podcasts as well. The Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere else on Amazon. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Robert. My pleasure, John. Thank you. <laughs>